Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and... Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Every Town. Thank you guys so much for tuning into our podcast. If you guys enjoy listening to Every Town, then I wanted to let you know that there are always a video component to each episode over on our YouTube channel called Scary Mysteries. They're really well put together and put faces to the names, so you can always head over to our Scary Mysteries YouTube channel if you want to view them. There's also two other videos that come out on our YouTube channel each and every Monday and Wednesday where we cover strange and creepy stories from all around the world. Those can also be listened to in podcast form on our other podcast channel called Scary Mysteries. We have tons of cool content for you all around. Thanks so much for the support and tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Every town has a dark side. In the hearts and mind of Kaylee Poulton's family and friends, she will forever be four and a half years old. Their memories of Kaylee have been frozen in time and she only comes alive on home videos, playing and smiling on camera. In today's episode, We'll tackle the harrowing death of an innocent four-year-old girl at the hands of a predator. The tragedy almost drove Kaylee Ann's mother crazy, but more shattering was finally knowing after two years what really happened to her little girl. 
and her instincts about who did it were right all along. I'm Andrew Fitzgerald, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Town, which will take us to Rochester, New York, beginning in 1994, and taking us up until the time that justice was attained for the brutal death of Callie Poulton. In September of 1989, David Poulton and Judy Gifford became parents to a lovely baby girl who they named Callie Ann. She was adored by everyone for her infectious laughter. When the toddler was three years old, her parents decided to separate, but David and Judy maintained a friendly relationship. The mother and daughter then settled into Gleason Circle, a quaint suburban apartment complex surrounded by large oak and maple trees in East Rochester, New York. As a single mom with an only child, Judy was naturally protective of the apple of her eye. In order to make ends meet, Judy took on a part-time marketing job placing inserts in magazines that she would then deliver. She wanted to save up for a Disney World trip with her daughter the following summer. At around 6.45 on a warm spring evening on May 23, 1994, Mrs. Gifford was busy with her job and wanted to finish the delivery of the magazines so that she could take Callie to McDonald's afterwards for the kid to enjoy playing at the outdoor children's playground. Seeing other kids playing on the streets outside, Callie begged her mom to join them and ride her white and pink colored big wheel tricycle. Judy agreed as long as Callie rode her tricycle in front of their house within the mother's sight. The kid was thrilled and rode happily back and forth along the sidewalk while her mom would check on her from time to time. After a few minutes, Mrs. Gifford was done with her task and ready to load the magazines in her car for delivery. When she went out to call for Callie, there was no answer though, and the kid was nowhere in sight. Judy intuitively sensed that something was wrong, so panic gripped her as she couldn't control her crying. She continued yelling Callie's name and soon thereafter her neighbors frantically helped looking for the little girl and her big wheel. One of those neighbors was 24-year-old Mark Christie who had moved to the Gleason neighborhood complex in mid-April of that year with his girlfriend and 18-month-old son. Mr. Christie was carrying his son to the complex's playground when Mrs. Gifford asked him if he had seen Callie, but he said no and continued walking. The strange thing Judy noticed was Mark's high-top sneakers were untied. The panic-stricken mother then called authorities for help. 
she recalled, I called 911 right away. The firemen and police showed up. They brought a dog. They searched the grounds, went door to door, and they found nothing. It then dawned on the hapless single mother that she was facing every parent's nightmare. Callie was missing, and something very bad may have happened to her. The following day, Mrs. Gifford was investigated by two Monroe County Sheriff's detectives at her house. They asked a ton of questions to the distraught mother, who was the last one to have seen and talked to her daughter on the night that Callie went missing. Normally, police would look at the victim's family first. With no clue of an abduction and lack of any leads, Judy became a suspect in her daughter's disappearance. This only added to her pain, and she thought that had police focused on searching the loop of 300 apartments and their occupants, they would have solved the case of Callie faster. When asked of any potential suspects, Mrs. Gifford had no one in mind. When police inquired of a new resident in the complex who had shown affection towards Callie, Judy then told them about Mark Christie. He lived approximately 100 yards from Mrs. Gifford and her daughter, and the two used to help Mark's baby play at the local park slide playground. The distressed mom told the authorities how Mr. Christie had given her the creeps in several instances where he told her about how beautiful Callie was. Mrs. Gifford recalled, he would say, your daughter is a very precious little girl, and I'd say thank you. We were accustomed to hearing that. In one disturbing, casual conversation they had, Mark said that Callie was the prettiest of all the little girls he would see around the complex. Then he actually asked Judy if her daughter would tell her if anyone dared to touch her, to which the suspicious mother replied, Yes. It made Judy uncomfortable, to say the least and she tried to avoid Mr. Christie whenever she could after that. The detectives then wasted no time in contacting Mr. Christie after talking with Judy. Unluckily, though, they found nothing that would link Mark to Kelly's disappearance. They learned that he grew up in Hilton, New York, as a punk, but he had no criminal record and was never involved in crimes against children. In the many grueling hours detectives interviewed Mark, he maintained his innocence and denied any involvement in his neighbor's daughter's mysterious disappearance. He even went on to pass a polygraph test, but the detectives were convinced Mr. Christie was lying and hiding something. Mrs. Gifford felt disappointed that police hadn't found anything that would prove Mark was accountable for Callie's disappearance, but... In due time, Judy's suspicions proved to be correct. Wow. 
After Callie's disappearance in May of 94, police weren't able to pursue a single lead, even after interviewing dozens of people about the case. The suspected neighbor, Mark, kept firm about his innocence, which made matters worse because he was no longer considered a viable suspect. This turnaround and decision was based on Mrs. Gifford's testimony that she had seen Mark and his son at the playground right after Callie vanished without a trace. But two investigators, Patrick Crow, who wrote the book Seducing Among Our Children, How to Protect Your Child from Sexual Predators, and Thomas Passmore, didn't let Mark totally off the hook. They maintained that he was the primary suspect in the case, so the duo of investigators struck an informal relationship with Mr. Christie, so he would stay on their radar. They told Mark that he could discuss the case with them anytime he was ready to talk about it. In dire need to find answers about her daughter, Mrs. Gifford quit her marketing job and devoted her time making sure that the public and the authorities didn't bury Kelly's case into oblivion. She took an active stance and got involved instead of sitting back while waiting for the police's investigation results. She said, I went on every talk show that asked me and used every vehicle possible to get coverage. And her efforts worked as huge national shows like The Oprah Winfrey Show and America's Most Wanted feature the story of Callie Poulter. Judy often worked past midnight in a donated single-room office making posters and flyers she distributed at toll booths and county fairs. Callie's pictures were also inserted into airline ticket jackets displayed on car windows, office walls, and many storefronts. Just a few months after the girl disappeared, Mr. Christie left Gleason Estates and moved to the rural hamlet of Gananda, 15 miles east of Rochester. Allegedly, he was evicted from the Gleason property because of complaints that he exposed himself to two girls. Mark found a new job as a part-time security guard at Nortel, a telecommunications company, and had a brand new wife named Lacey Newton. If Mark thought moving away from his former neighborhood would end the hauntings of Callie's disappearance, he was wrong. Three weeks into their marriage in August of 96, the Christie couple had an argument that led to Mark's confession of murdering little Miss Poulter. But why would he suddenly admit it like that? It would be like committing suicide. Mark probably thought his desperate attempt would gain his wife's sympathy who threatened to leave him because of his strange behaviors. But sadly, Lacey Ann wasn't moved by her husband's dramatics, so she immediately left with their son to go to her father's house, where she called up 911. And finally, 
Mark was facing a dead end. 911, what is your emergency? Again, investigator Patrick Crow was quick on his feet, and after learning that Mark hadn't left his house yet, he drove across the county to speak to him. But the investigator was welcomed by Mark's mother, who shouted that her son won't go with Mr. Crow and had already contacted a lawyer. Despite this, Mark still went with the investigator under the condition that he'd be brought to his lawyer afterward. As they drove, an uncuffed Mark told the investigator that he would spill the beans about Kelly's disappearance after he had consulted his attorney. But the seasoned investigator knew any lawyer would never allow his client to do that. So Mr. Crow cleverly devised a plan that would subtly make Mark say incriminating things. When the Monroe County investigator casually mentioned that Callie's parents will never find out what exactly happened to their child or if Callie ever suffered, Mark surprisingly replied, she didn't suffer. Upon reaching Rochester, they had lunch at an Italian restaurant where they began talking about Callie's case. The comfortable atmosphere put the suspect at ease and made him confident during their conversation. So without much coaxing from the investigator, Mark said he felt haunted seeing Callie's face in posters and on national TV shows. At this time, Mr. Crow had already deciphered the kind of person Mark was. He liked to be in control, so the police agent stroked his suspect's ego. The investigator complimented Mark because he had beaten the police fair and square. Trying not to sound like he was bragging, the suspected abductor then said that getting rid of the kid's big wheel in order to elude the police was his clever idea. Mr. Crow further bolstered Mark's pride by pretending to be amazed at how the latter fooled the police and it perhaps encouraged Mark to divulge more so he asked the investigator if he was interested in how he had done it all. Mr. Crow then said sure, and then Mr. Christie was on a roll recounting the unfortunate incident, but forgetting that the law enforcer was out to trap him. Mark then said that after he killed Callie, he kept her big wheel in his apartment, which the police missed when they searched his unit. But how? Mr. Christie chopped up the tricycle into small pieces and hid them throughout the house, especially in his articles of clothing, which even his wife didn't notice. When Mark had the chance to dispose of the bits and pieces of the big wheel, He placed them in several duffel bags together with his clothes. He was able to avoid scrutiny at the police roadblock, and he got rid of the bike pieces as he drove throughout the county. But what about the circumstances about Callie's actual disappearance? Investigator Crow used an interrogation tactic commonly used by law enforcers 
that minimized the criminal's guilt. He wanted to make it appear as if Mark was still in control. So he told his suspect to tell his story as if Callie's death wasn't his fault. Otherwise, the public would think Mark was a monstrous child killer. It apparently worked because Mark then asked Mr. Crow the length of jail time he might get, to which the latter estimated to be at least 25 years with the possibility of life in jail. Mr. Crow then told his suspect that it was time to get it right for himself, his family, and God. And those were like magic words that made Mark confess to his crime against Callie Poulter and her family. At the start, Mark clarified that Callie Ann didn't suffer. He said, I strangled her, but didn't do anything to her. By saying he didn't do anything to Callie, he clarified to the investigator that he didn't sexually abuse the young girl. On that ill-fated early evening in May of 94, Callie had driven to Mr. Christie's apartment to play with his toddler, Alex. The father knew that Mrs. Gifford wouldn't allow her daughter to go to his unit, so he kept her tricycle in the kitchen where no one would see it. And then Callie went upstairs to play with Alex. About 10 minutes later, Judy was screaming Callie's name as she was anxiously looking for her. When Mark heard this, he panicked and strangled Callie until she died, which his 18-month-old son most likely witnessed. He then carried Callie's body downstairs to the dining room and placed it on the floor, perhaps to make sure his neighbors would see him outside at the time that Callie disappeared. Mr. Christie then brought his son to the playground, where he ran into Judy desperately looking for her angel. Mr. Crow told Mark he was puzzled how Callie's dead body was brought out of his apartment before the police arrived. The child killer detailed that when he and his son went back to their apartment, he placed Callie's body inside a laundry basket and covered it with a blanket. The outside scenario was chaotic, and so no one noticed him putting the basket in the trunk of his car. What Mr. Christie finally did was truly a monstrous act. He drove to the telecommunications company, where he formerly worked as a security guard, told the guards on duty that he would pick up some things he had left behind. He then walked to the rear of the building and climbed to the top of an enclosed 30,000-gallon tank before doing his final evil deed Mark tied a piece of heavy metal equipment to his victim's body that would weigh her down, and then he dumped Callie's lifeless body into the tank filled with liquid coolant. He told Investigator Crow that he got rid of the blanket, Callie's clothing, but he left her earrings on. Perhaps to further downplay the suspicion of his involvement in the crime, Mark even joined in the search for the missing girl after he had thrown her into that tank. 
After recounting how he abducted and killed his neighbor's beloved daughter, Mark said, It never should have happened. It was a waste. It took one lunch meeting for Investigator Crow to finally solve the puzzle that had hounded authorities and Callie's family for 27 months since her vanishing in the spring of 94. The meeting on August 10, 1996 was a significant turning point in the case, to say the least. For Mr. Christie, he was able to unload his biggest burden off his chest, but for Mr. Crow, he was able to trap the biggest fish involved in one of the most horrible crimes that plagued Rochester. The answer Mrs. Gifford had been searching for for so long was now certain. Mark Christie was arrested that night and charged with second-degree murder. Hours after, he led police to the tank where he submerged Callie, whose badly decomposed remains were retrieved. Although Mr. Christie's confession eased her pain, Mrs. Gifford was shocked by the truth because she always believed Callie was alive. In October of 97, Mr. Christie pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 25 years in prison and, possibly, life in jail. Prosecutors claimed that Mark had also confessed to a co-worker and his father about murdering Callie, and as part of his plea deal, the first-degree kidnapping charge was dropped. He's currently serving his sentence at the Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Austin, New York, and will be eligible for parole in 2041. The disappearance and murder of Callie Poulter was solved through Judy Gifford's unwavering resolve to find answers and investigator Patrick Crowe's outstanding detective work. For a mother who lost her only child, Mrs. Gifford couldn't help getting nostalgic at times. If Callie were alive today, perhaps she would have been successful in her chosen career and happy being a mother. But Mrs. Gifford has learned not to let grief consume her because the man who caused it isn't worth it. Mark Christie got a life sentence for killing Callie, and Judy felt the same. He left me with the life sentence to live without her, she said. She has since overcome the belief that she doesn't deserve to be happy. The strong mom never had another child, so Callie remains as the only apple of her eye, heart, and mind. So that's it for this week's episode of Every Town. Tune in next week for another one filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because who knows? Maybe your town will be next.